So Money Episode 597, James Altucher. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. He's back. You're listening to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. He's back, ladies and gentlemen. My friend, James Altucher. You might know him. He's been on the show a couple of times. And he is a top podcaster, has written several best-selling books. He's got a really funky hairdo, and he's a really nice guy. So happy to be able to reconnect with him. I was up for the opportunity to have lunch or a podcast with James. He and I actually are meeting up for a third time on this show to talk about all the crazy stuff happening in the world. We do a lot of catching up. And of course, we talk about money. We also talk about minimalism as James is now taking on a very minimalist lifestyle, only living in Airbnbs. We talk about Bernie Madoff. Yeah, blast from the past. How did Bernie Madoff actually get away with his crime for so many years? Finally get the chance to ask James this question as he is the Wall Street whiz. And also James kindly takes time to answer some of your personal specific money questions. Without further ado, here is the one and only James Altucher. James, welcome back. Farnoosh, I am so excited to be back on So Money. Third time's a charm. This is my third time on the show. Third time. You know who told me third time's a charm? You know, you know who, who told me? So I was getting a divorce and <laughs> and Kevin O'Leary, you know, the guy from Shark yes, Tank, he, I know had, him well. he had just come to my podcast and he said, anybody getting a divorce is a failure. You just totally screwed up. And I felt really bad about myself. Yeah, that's such a and, thing. and it wasn't my, I, I don't want to say fault or anything like divorces are complicated, but I just felt like this failure. Why so, would he say something like that? Because for him, very important. Mr. Charming. Well, no, he was a very good guy. Like I, I really liked him, but his point was, you know, marriage is such an important decision. You should really do due diligence like you would with any other really important decision. And if you get the divorce, it might mean you didn't really do the appropriate due diligence you should have. And now you're going to waste money. Spoken like a true businessman. Yeah. But marriage is not a business. Marriage is a very, uh, it's, uh, oh gosh. I mean, it's an evolution. Right. It's true. And and so that's a philosophy that worked for him. And he wrote about, he wrote a book about relationships. You know, you think of him as a business guy, but he wrote a book about relationships, but it is kind of filtered by his business outlook or philosophy. But so then I was feeling really depressed. So I called Judy Bloom, who's was my favorite writer as a kid. She's written like a dozen books that, that just helped me survive childhood, uh, ranging from tales of a fourth grade, nothing to blubber to forever to later on wifey. And I said to her, you know, I feel you like just called her, like yeah, yeah. Look her up on. Well, because I was going to have her on my podcast, <laughs> and I, I said to her, I feel like this failure, like this is two divorces, and is something wrong with me? And she said, Listen, I got to listen to me because I represent your entire childhood, right? And, and she said, Am I right? And I said, Yes, you do actually. And she sold 150 million copies of her books, and uh, she said, Okay. I am married for the third time. I met my third husband in 1978. I've been married for 35 years. It's been great. Third time's a charm. So you're the second person. So that will you get me. married again? Is now the question. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll but see. I do I do believe the uh, third time's a charm. Well, I have to say it's always awesome to catch up with you. You we just did. Everyone listening, I've been I'm in James's studio in Manhattan. He's much more professional and and buttoned up than I am when it comes to podcasting. Thanks for inviting me to I'm your I'm not so digs. sure about that. <laughs> well, we just got finished doing about an hour and a half on your show. I interviewed you for your podcast. So everyone go listen to that. And now I thought it would be fun to have you on So Money to talk more about money and finance and entrepreneurship. And I actually reached out to a lot of the listeners for their biggest questions. A lot of them want to, they can't get enough. They cannot well, get enough of you. I I appreciate it because I feel like I've been through so much financially, like making money, losing a lot of money, 
you know, dealing with not only personal finance issues, but professional finance issues in terms of entrepreneurship and investing. I even ran a hedge fund where I invested other people's money. So I feel like I've got the full range. And plus you and I together, we wrote about and spoke about finance for like almost a decade at the street.com and CNBC and other outlets. So, you know, I haven't done as much finance lately, although I'm still heavily involved in, you know, managing money and so on. Well, speaking of, when you Google James Altucher, I mentioned this on your on your podcast. When you type James, at least at least in my browser, when you type in James Altucher in Google, the next word that comes up automatically is podcast. The second one is net worth. That's so funny. So people are really curious about your net worth. Can you answer that for us here on the show? What's your net worth? Sure. I mean, it's a hard question to answer because I'm also an investor in a lot of companies. Um, so it really depends day by day how these companies are doing and, and also what I kind of expect from these companies. So I don't know. Seven figures, eight figures. Yeah. Eight figures. And, um, you know, which is 10 million plus, but it could be much lower. I mean, it just depends on how some of these private companies work out. And, and I don't like to keep too much cash around. If I have cash, I put it. In, I invest it and invest it in companies. Where do you keep companies. your money? Do you have a multiple bank accounts? Do you? Yeah, I have multiple bank accounts, and uh, uh, and then also I'm invested in various uh, like hedge funds or venture funds, and then I invest my money in, in. I invest in a lot of private companies, so I'd rather invest in a private company where I know the C, you know, we talked about this before, but where I know the CEO is smarter than me. I know the co-investors have done their due diligence and they're smarter than, than me. So I'd rather do that than like, for instance, buy a house where I'm a professional idiot, for instance, any place where I'm a professional idiot, I don't invest my money. And then, um, and then I also run my own business. So, and that, that's doing very well. That, that, that's worth quite a bit. Do you ever take into consideration the political climate when you're putting your money somewhere? I mean, a lot of people right now are holding on to cash. Actually, the personal state, no one's reporting this. And I feel like this is a big headline. But I discovered, just because I read a lot of the data, that household savings rate on average has been going up, up, up since, wait for it, November. Okay, since November, the personal because we don't like to save in this country, so this isn't like it doesn't sound like yeah. a lot, but we're at six percent right now. We were at around four and a half, five percent in the fall, and it's only going up. And I think that people are talking about quote unquote Trump again. They are they realize that we're in maybe a bubble in the stock market that it's getting very frothy. That we're headed for a correction at the very least, a recession at worst. So at knowing that, anticipating that, people are not willing to risk their money right now. What do you say to that? And how are you going about your own financial planning right well, now? Well, I think, I think nobody can time – I mean, we all know this. Nobody can time the market. Nobody could say, oh, because Trump was elected, now things will go down. Just like, you know, no president has ever determined the fate of the stock market. Like Amazon, Apple, Google – uh, keep growing. Silicon Valley keeps making inventions. They have nothing to do with who's president and who's not president. They 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 grow under W. They grew under Bill Clinton. They grew under Barack Obama. They're going to grow under Trump. <sighs> so so most most companies don't really care who's president or who's not president. And I think you can't if you try to time the stock market, you end up losing. Because I remember I would I actually just this morning, just for the fun of it, I don't know why I did this. It's like it's almost like I was being masochistic this morning. <laughs> but I went on Zero Hedge, which is that very negative finance website. I don't even want to call it a finance site. It's like this this, you know, idiot. It's like us know. weekly for finance nerds. Yeah, it's or like uh <laughs> I don't even know what it's like. I can't even compare it to anything. But Wait, they, what's it called again? Zero Hedge. Zero Hedge. You must know it. I've never heard of it. Oh, so it's been around for a while. It's popular. But I Googled my name. I mean, I, I didn't Google my name. I searched my name on it. And they. I saw there was a lot of people who were trashing me in 2010 and 2011 because I said within the next five years, there's going to be Dow 20,000. And they were like, that guy, James Altucher is a douchebag. That guy's an idiot. <laughs> He's a ugly, stupid you know, Fill in the blank. jerk. Yeah. Like, uh, and they were all trashy a hundred percent. Not a single person said, well, he might be right. And now we're at Dow 20,000. Is there one apology? Is there one person said, well, I guess he's right. No, zero. So, 
you can't, all these people who think they're so smart and like, oh, we're going to save our money now because Donald Trump's going to bring us to nuclear war. If there's a nuclear war, what good was saving your money? So I, I don't know. I think, I'm not saying put all your money in the stock market. I'm just saying always have your money working for you. But more importantly, always have ideas working for you. Always don't don't think scarcity. Don't think, oh my God, I better save now because there's going to be less opportunities for money. You know, let's not forget the federal government printed up trillions of dollars over the past 10 years. That money is still kind of in banks or in the banking system. It's still ready to kind of float out there. And if you have good ideas and you're creative, whether as an investor or as an owner of something, you'll get a hold of some of those extra dollars that are out there. And it has nothing to do with whether the market goes up or down. Meanwhile, the market keeps going up. If there's inflation, the market's going up. If there's an increase in productivity and technology, which everyone expects, the market's going to go up. Uh, if there's any kind of tax cuts, which whether or not Trump does this, I don't know, but the market will go up on that because corporations will have higher profits. I don't know if tax cuts are a good thing or a bad thing, but if there are tax cuts, the market's probably going to go up. And in general, the market over history, if you ever bet against the market, today the market is within 1% of all-time highs, or maybe it's at all-time highs. I don't know. So the market, if you ever bet in the mar- against the market before today, you, you, you're, you're down money. Some of my listeners have student loans, as do many people in this country, and you know, people in their 40s and 50s are still dealing with their student loans. I know you are anti-college at this point. But if you and you brought up bailouts, do you think that the government should bail out borrowers of student loans, um, those who can never pay them back? I mean, they're quick to bail out AIG and some of the big banks. Why not bail out your citizens who are basically financially bankrupt? They can't build businesses. They can't help the economy because they're just just so deep in the student loan crisis. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I very specifically remember you and I have had this conversation, not the bailout, but the college conversation back in 2006 or 2007. And uh, my opinion then was I was considered ridiculous. Like, oh, of course, people have to go to college because how are they going to get a job otherwise? But just yesterday, Ernst & Young, um, the, the top accounting firm in the country, said they're not even going to ask you anymore if you have a college degree. And Google no longer asks if you have a college degree. Now, most kids still go to college. Student loan debt is – that's why student loan debt is higher than ever. Tuitions have gone up because the government backs student loans and, you, and you're not allowed to default on student loans even in a bankruptcy. College presidents have – intelligently decided let's scam kids and the government are the two most obvious choices to scam and let's raise tuitions faster than inflation. And they've been doing this every year since 1977 without fail. I mean, tiny liberal arts colleges are 70,000 a year. You have to you have to make like a million bucks to send your one kid to college. And you graduate having no hard skills and not to say that there's no value in studying literature and art history. And, and there's other advantages to, I think, going to going away to college. You can make the argument that you're meeting people, you're experiencing life in a new way, in a new light, you get enlightened. But at the end of the day, what's the return on that investment? If you can't make money and if you're so set back because you have $100,000 or $200,000 in student loans, right. what is like, that, where does like, that leave you? It used to be – look, look at many of the greatest entrepreneurs in in history – Many of them started their businesses in their 20s because they weren't bogged down by student loan debt. Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, all these people, Steve Jobs, they weren't bogged down by student loan debt. Now, there is statistical evidence, which I don't argue with, that if you went to college in the 70s, that now you're probably making more money than the people who didn't go to college in the 70s. There's a lot of things wrong with that statistical study, and it probably doesn't apply to now because – college and experience are so different now. Now there's so many opportunities for online learning. Like I spoke to a guy last year, Scott Young, who he, because MIT's entire course catalog is online, videos, homework, tests, everything. He finished a computer science degree at MIT in one year. The, the whole thing, he took every course, he took every test, he did every homework assignment and they grade it, whatever. But he, he didn't, he just didn't get the certificate, but he got all the knowledge. He just did it in one year. But still, some people need that certificate. But really, for computer programming, they just want to make sure you have the skills. They don't want to make sure you have a degree. A degree means nothing. We're in an idea-based economy and a skill-based economy, not a certificate-based economy. We used to be in a certificate-based economy. It's just not true anymore. So 
I do think most students feel like for social reasons and for fear reasons, they should go to college. All their friends are going to college. They don't want to be left out. Uh, it's the last time they hang out with people their age. Like I, most of my friends, I don't even know if I have any friends my exact age. Like as you get older, you you start start having friends who are not your age, who are not your, from your same neighborhood that you all go to college with. So, and again, you're right. Like, uh, you know, I have employees, they're experts on, uh, you know, writing, finance, uh, sales, uh, the latest internet marketing, all of these things that are not taught in college at all, because a lot of the skills were actually created yesterday and they have to keep up with them on a daily basis. What they're good at is learning and having the personal network of what was created yesterday. And you build that on the job with whatever career you're going to be in. You still have to get an education, right? You can't just assume that I'm not going to go to college. I'm just going to start working. I mean, you could do that, but well, well, you have well, to learn for something. What? I mean, if you want to learn to code, you got to learn to go to coding school. No, you, uh, don't uh, you? No, because like, okay, I'll give you, you mind if I give an example? Yeah, please. I studied computer science in college. At and, Carnegie Mellon. Well, Cor- Cornell undergrad, Cornell. <laughs> and so people are going to say, oh, now he doesn't want kids to go to college so because he gets to be better than you them. You will not be giving a commencement speech at Cornell anytime soon. Oh, I one time spoke at a, a <laughs> Cornell event and I said my computer science degree was a waste. And there was a computer science professor also in the panel and she made yes. fun of me. So I had to tell this exact story I'm going to tell you. So I got a computer science degree at Cornell, put in my 10,000 hours uh, programming, went to graduate school for computer science, you know, put in probably another 10,000 hours. Then I actually got a real job in the real world. I was working at HBO in their IT department, in their computer department. My programming skills were so bad. And this is after graduate school and undergrad at the two best computer science schools in the country or in the top 10. My computer programming skills were so bad, they had to send me to remedial classes at a local AT&T facility. Where did everybody else learn how to code? On the job. They mm-hmm. all learned on the job. And then finally, I learned at this facility that I was taking these remedial classes. would you have the job if you didn't have the degree? Uh, no, because I'll, t- I'll tell you why I got the job. I left graduate school and I started working in the art department at Carnegie Mellon, helping them figure out what virtual reality was going to look at. This was like over 20 years ago and HBO wanted to get into virtual reality. So they uh, offered me a job, but still I had to program and I had no skills. So I finally had to learn by taking these remedial classes and then I got obsessed with it. And so when you get obsessed with something and you're on the job and I wanted to be the best and then I started, you know, building websites for other companies on the side. So I had to learn to be really fast because I was working my full-time job. And then on the side, I had side gigs doing programming. So I had to really get good and fast and smart about it and use yesterday's technology, not the old school textbook technology they were teaching in college. So again, I learned everything. And then, and then I wanted, and then I decided I didn't want to do computers at all. I wanted to be a writer. And you I pivoted a lot. And yeah. I, I want to ask you about that because right now I think a lot of people are having like an ex- existential crisis about what they're doing with their lives. I get a lot of questions from listeners who are working at a desk job. They want to be out there in a bigger way. They don't know how to do it. They don't know how to make transitions. I think trans- the transition is always really hard because it usually means giving up something. It means adjusting. It means- It usually means that. A it doesn't necessarily faith. mean that, but go ahead. Yeah. So how do you- Get the confidence, but also plan of action to make pivots. Like when you go, I don't want to be a computer science geek anymore. I want to do, I want to write. Is it a personality thing? You just have to be willing to know that if I'm going to fail and it'll, and I'll still be okay. Yeah, you're going to fail. And failing is a, a hard word. Like I, I, failing sucks. Like nobody wants to fail. Failing means uh, you, you, you're a drug addict, alcoholic, and you lose all your jobs and lost all your money and lost your family. And you're, you're in the gutter shooting up with a needle. That's but Tony Robbins the, would say, you still, you could still win. You could still win even from then. Yes. You could still win. Look, I've, I've been there and I've still come back from that. But in general, uh, let's, let's view the word as experiment. So you're working your desk job and you're saying to yourself, oh, I can't do this forever. Am I going to really end my life saying I worked uh, in a cubicle for 40 years? No. First off, job churn is greater than that now than it's ever been before. So people stay in jobs on average about four years. And really it's much less for most people. But let's just say you're thinking, about, what should I do? Well, there's lots of ways to experiment. So I was at a point where I had no idea what I was going to do. I had failed at a business. I had lost all my money. I was losing my house. 
but I had to do something. I had two little babies and I had to, I had no job. Nobody was returning my calls because I had lost, you know, they'd all invested in my business and my business failed. I, and I've talked about this before, but I started writing down 10 ideas a day just to improve my creativity. Creativity is a muscle. You have to exercise it. But I've written about that before. I won't go over that again. The question is, how do you, people say ideas are a dime a dozen. Execution is everything. There's, I'm going to call a little bit of BS on that. You, A, ideas, a good idea is hard to have. So you have to really have a strong creativity muscle. Just like working out in the gym, you don't need to have like strong muscles to lift cars, but you, it's healthy to work out in the gym and, and it's healthy to exercise your creativity muscle. And then when you have a good idea, even a bad idea, you have to know how to execute it. So execution ideas are a subset of ideas. So for instance, I had a bad idea for a business just the other day. I was talking to a friend of mine and he told me, oh, um, he made up, he sort of joked about him and his girlfriend. They said, we're going steady now. And so we just started riffing on a business idea. Let's make a going steady app. So, uh, you know, you download the app. Let's say I'm him and you're the girlfriend. You download the app. I'll download the Going Steady app. We'll connect to each other. And now we say we're going steady. So now we can share that on Twitter and Facebook, whatever, and to our friends, you know, so blah, blah, blah. And then, and then also the Going Steady app deletes all the dating apps on all on our phones. <laughs> and if we ever download a dating app and inform and emails the other person and says, oh, Barnoosh just downloaded Tinder, you should know. Got a wandering eye, that yeah. James. Or 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 if you ever disconnect from me on the Going Steady app, then I get informed by email. So we were just talking and then he went off. He said, this is a great idea. We absolutely have to do it. So then he goes off to his, you know, his thing. I go off to my thing. So, okay, I went off to my thing. I specked out the idea, what each button would look like on a going steady app, what all the functionality was. Took me about a half hour. I went on freelancer.com. I signed up. I posted a spec. Um, uh, 15 people bid on the job from all these different countries. And I started through text boxes interviewing them. And it turns out uh, you could do this on Android, this app, but you can't do it on the iPhone because the iPhone can't, and at one app can't see what the other apps on your phone are. There's extra privacy. So, so it was a bad idea and I couldn't execute on it. But I wrote to my friend and he, who we came with, he said, that's the difference between you and me. I'm a lazy sack of shit. And you actually <laughs> tried to turn this into a business. Took me 45 minutes to, to, to vet whether this was a good idea. If I had said yes, I would have spent 600 bucks and just outsourced. Two weeks later, the company promised to have the app done, upload it to the iTunes store and the Google Play store, and even begin marketing it. So for just six hundred dollars in two weeks. Now maybe it would have they would have they were over promising. Maybe it would have taken a month. Maybe I would have had to manage a little bit more. But it's relatively easy to get started. You just have to say, okay, let's just take the next step. And uh, uh, it is a person. It has to be in your DNA because I think that there are people who have a lot of ideas. They have a lot of aspirations. They think their ticket has to be money. Once I make the money, once I get a raise, once I win the lottery, I, all my dreams will come true. But look, there's something where I could have started a whole thing right. for 600 bucks. Maybe it would have worked. Maybe it wouldn't have. But for 600 bucks, I'll experiment like that. I'll do one experiment like that per month. So how would you characterize that person who is waiting for the windfall to be able to, uh, to motivate them to do something? I would say they're just wrong. They're just wrong. Yeah. I would say exercise your doing muscle. I'll give you another example. I was having lunch with a friend of mine. He um, was in the business of putting ads on YouTube channels. So he worked for a company that did put ads on YouTube channels. And he said, boy, I'd really like to create my own YouTube show. I have this idea of creating YouTube uh, videos of gamers. And I'm like, well, why don't you do it? And he said, well, I have to raise money and buy the equipment and stuff. And I said, well, give me your phone for a second. And he gives me his phone. It's the latest iPhone. And I said, this phone has a better video camera on it than all the video cameras that made all the best movies in history. Like this video camera is better than the video camera that made The Godfather, that made Lawrence of Arabia, that made Star Wars. Like, why don't you just use the video on this phone and 
Find a good, right. put an ad in on Craigslist. <laughs> I need some good video gamers. I'm going to take videos of you and start your YouTube channel and just see. It'll take you like an hour or two of time. And you don't give the excuse you don't have the video equipment. People have people have exercised their excuse muscle very well, but they don't right. exercise their doing muscle. And by the way, it's just a matter of writing down execution steps and that exercises the execution muscle. I'll give you another example. Um, have you ever seen the Eric Andre show? No. Oh, I just started watching this. And what, it's, where is it? On it, Netflix? It's on Comedy Central Adult Swim. Okay. And, but it wasn't always. The I cut guy, the cord, but I don't have cable. The the guy, well, you can see a lot of clips on YouTube, but the guy was like a bike messenger and he used his final $200. He, rep, he rented the back of the room in a bodega and he, he, he got a styrofoam desk and he got some random guests to come on. He called publicists and he said, I'm running a talk show. And he got some publicists <laughs> to send over some semi-famous, you know, reality show guests. And he just created the most hilarious version of a late night talk show that he could think of. He totally like freaks out all of his guests. He did that completely on his own with his last $200. He had no money left. He literally biked it over to Comedy Central, showed them this hilarious video of what he did. Now he's in his fourth season of his show. Like that's all Brilliant. the best stories. That's a lot of, it's not a lot of examples, but I think that there's something to be said about just starting small, using your own resources, whatever they are, create. And these days you're right. If you have Wi-Fi and you have a phone and you have writing skills or your able body, there's a lot you can do to get out there and get an audience. And if, if you're interested in, you know, Became, becoming a public figure of some sort. Right. And then these bigger networks, they want social proof. They don't want to like, because what, what do networks do? They do a pilot first. But if you've already piloted your stuff, essentially, right, you've test marketed it, you've got, you've shown, I've built this audience, I'm, I'm likable, you know, then they're more than willing to take a chance on you. Yeah. And, you know, look, the, I just gave anecdotes and someone can say, oh, he just gave anecdotes. That doesn't always work. Justin Bieber started that way. But but yeah, Justin Bieber was just doing YouTube videos and then Scooter Braun saw them and Scooter Braun was like, hey, move into my house. You know, Adam Braun, who I don't I've, know. If, yeah, I just had him on my podcast. Yeah. So Adam and Scooter were like in bunk beds together growing up. And then just, <laughs> you know, I mean, Adam and Justin Bieber and then Justin Bieber becomes this huge hit. So I had this big epiphany when I was interviewing Adam Braun. So he grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, the, the richest town in the country and maybe the world. And I had this epiphany. So I thought, okay, what's the best way to raise ambitious kids, ambitious kids, right? I think you move to the richest part of the world, but you give them nothing. <laughs> you, in other words, you don't spoil them. You don't let them to live like their friends. Sure. And yeah, they probably had a nice house and they had nice things, but Adam remembers always working. He remembers Hanukkah. The second night of Hanukkah, his parents said, you're not getting anything tonight. You're going to give and every other night for the next eight nights, we're going to give you something. But then the next night, you need to we need to decide where we're going to donate our money. And that's they, a that's a good thing. Right? So it's like showing them what the potential is. Right? They live next to these millionaires, billionaires, rich kids, but we're not allowed to themselves act and play rich because well, it wasn't their money. It was their parents' money. You know, a lot of people ask about this, like, what's the best way to raise kids? Now, my kids were raised dead broke because I went broke when they were babies and we had to move to, you know, an area that wasn't known for being well off. And then I've, I then had ups and then I got broke again. And they've seen big houses, small, dead broke. They've been scared just like I've been scared. They're a product of divorce. So, but what I would do with my kids is we'd walk in up and down the street and I would say to them for each business, tell me why this business is going to either succeed or fail. And they would analyze. So there was once a business in my town called um, uh, Dolls and Balls. <laughs> and they sell they sold dolls for girls and like balls for guys, like basketballs, baseballs, everything. And I'm like, is this business going to succeed to my daughter, Josie? And she was six years old and she said, well, and she had a very cute little voice. Now she doesn't, she's 18. <laughs> but uh, she said, well, uh, I don't, it's gotta be for either girls or boys. I don't want to go in a boys store. And so like, and she was right. Like within six months, that store was, mm. was dead. And then on Shark Tank, we'd watch Shark Tank. The guy would pitch the business. I would pause it. What's this guy asking for? How should he pitch it? Is this a good idea or not? You know, oh, I never lecture my kids. I have 
discussions with them. And then I show them by example. So I'll let them come to a podcast this and listen in on, oh, now I'm talking to Farnoosh, who's done a TV show, has a podcast. And and you've really chosen yourself. You were an employee at thestreet.com. They didn't want you to write a book and be your own brand. They laid me off. Outside. Yeah. Yeah. They they were afraid of Farnoosh as opposed to, oh, she's an employee, uh, low level at thestreet.com. You you did your own book. You started pitching your own shows. You started going on all the TV networks. You made your own podcast, which is very successful. You do all of these things, which are incredible. And you did it yourself. It was if you relied on the street.com to say, hey, make a TV show for me, that never would have happened. Never ask for permission. Yeah. Ask for forgiveness. <laughs> you have and that's the case a hundred it's not anecdotal. That's the case a hundred percent of the time. Peter Thiel, worth ten billion dollars, first investor in Facebook, first investor in Palantir, which is worth twenty billion dollars now, creator of PayPal, started a great hedge fund. He was a lawyer. Okay, he went to a great college, got his law degree, I think at Stanford, worked for the best law firm in the country, I think Skadden Arps or Sullivan and Cromwell, one of those S law firms. And he quit. And all the partners were like, why are you quitting? You're going to make a million a year in a few years. And he's like, I can't do it anymore. And he was was at the, the smartest guy at the best law firm. And he took Risks. PayPal almost went out of business. They were up against X.com run by a young man named Elon Musk. And then eBay, uh, which was a multi-billion dollar company, started competing against them. So he did the smart thing. He merged all of them. And then he he just keeps on taking those risks and he gets wealthier and wealthier. And 100% of the time... It's some backdoor way. It's never like up through college that I'm going to work for a venture capital firm, then I'm going to start a company, then I'm going to be a billionaire. It, that's the rare anecdote. The real stories are all the people who take risks and do something a little bit out of the box and find the backdoor way and into an industry. Okay. So finish this sentence for me. Two sentences. At best, money can help you fill in the blank. Uh, I think money – well – I think money can help you find a sense of freedom, um, like, oh, I don't have to worry about money. But that means different things to different people. So I don't have any possessions. I don't own a house. Uh, I don't own a car. I, I I don't own anything. I don't I don't go out and buy anything. So, um, but I like having to know that I can survive. Now I'm a little paranoid because I've gotten broke so many times, I get really paranoid and I get a scarcity complex about money. So I'm Which o- we've talked about on the very first time you were on the show. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always afraid I'm going to go broke. Because your it, father had- My father went broke. Very he lost everything. Friend. Like, he, so, And you kind of yeah, continued he, that as an adult. Too. Yeah. I was afraid of turning into him. He had a nervous breakdown and then a stroke while arguing about money and then he died. Like, so money killed him and worrying about money killed him. And then he left my mom and all this debt that I had to help her with. And, um, uh, just money like destroyed my family and it destroyed me for so long, destroyed my, I hopefully not destroyed my kids, but, um, so, so freedom for me might mean, oh, can I survive 30 years from now? Well, I might be dead in 30 years, so I'm a bit irrational. But I think if you have the freedom to make choices that you want to make, then that's good. Some people only need money for six months and they know, oh, in six months, if I don't have it, I'll get another freelance job and I'll get the money. Or I don't have that much responsibility, so I'll, I'll get another job for a while and then I'll take off to Thailand and try, travel around the world. I know people who make a little money and then they move to Colombia. Uh, Colombia is used to be, you think of it as, oh, there's all the drug cartels. No, all the drug cartels have been cleaned out. You can move to a city like Cali in Colombia, get a penthouse for $50,000, live on $3 a day. And there's so many expatriates now who make like some money and move to a cheaper place because we live in a globalized world. So there's many more. I don't know how much people need. There's no such thing as the number anymore because it's different for each person. And everybody's sense of what freedom means is different. Yeah. So the other question, the other fill in the blank was at worst money can, and I think you kind of went over that, like it can at, destroy at, you. At worst money can make you think that your job is done as a human. So the first time I sold my company, I thought that's it. I've done every, I've learned everything I ever need to learn because now I've made money. I've, I don't need to get any healthier. I don't need to have better friends because now people are going to like me because of money. I don't have to work for it. I don't need to be creative anymore because I was creative and it made me money. Uh, I'm just now going to enjoy the fruits of my money. And as soon as I started thinking that, that was my peak in money. And I went straight down and lost 
everything so fast. It was like I was suicidal maybe 12 months later because I had zero after having money for generations. And money can convince you, you know, a lot of people equate net worth with self-worth. And a lot of people are convinced that if their net worth is high, their self-worth must be high too. So they don't have to work on self-worth anymore. But being human and reinventing is a nonstop job until you die or else you lose your health, you lose your creativity, you lose your sense of uh, you know, who you are as a, as a, an evolving human being and you lose your friendships, you lose your sense of, you know, how you should behave in the world around you. So money should just be a side effect of providing a service you love providing that helps other people. Money is just a side effect, nothing else. And it's, it's a way to pay the bills, depending on what your bills are, make your bills as low as possible. I mean, culturally, we we talk about money as a metric for success. So when I have people on this podcast in their bio, it'll say, I'm a seven-figure entrepreneur. I started a $10 million company. We use figures to validate our work and our purpose. And should we stop doing that? No, I mean- I'll give you I'll, I'll give you a specific example and then more generally answer. So I was writing a lot for about entrepreneurship in my books and for TechCrunch and other places, you know, because I had started a bunch of companies and some had worked and most had failed. And here's what I learned. And so two and a half years ago, or less than two and a half years ago, I wanted to see I hadn't started a company in a while. I wanted to see, OK, I'm going to start a company and see what happens. It, does my advice still work? So I started it in early 2015, 2015. We had 15 million in revenues and 1.6 million in profits. 2016, we had similar revenues, but the profits went up 2 million in profits. This year, we'll do even better. And I applied all of my theories about entrepreneurship. So I wanted to know if 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 things if I was right now if I could do it again and uh, and I was able to and it was relatively I don't want to say easy because there's problems every day every single day there's problems in entrepreneurship but in 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 the general case, uh, and I wanted to answer the general case, but what was the, I answered specifically, but, uh, oh, oh, you said basically, uh, do you judge your success by money? Or should we, you know, I, I think we it, do it so often. Is that, is that a bad behavior? So you judge your success as a business. Uh, I don't even know if you judge your success as a business I mean, if you're by money. you trade a company that it will absolutely be how you investors will judge it if your stock is going up but that's why a lot of companies don't want to go public as creative types as people who are career ambitious no the answer is no because and and you you mentioned like like let's take artists as an example so a huge percentage of the population would like to be more creative and artistic and let's say you're a writer a, a big award for writers is the national book award so the national book award winners this year the National Book Award winner before he won the award, I forget who it was, sold 2,500 copies of his book. That's it? That's it. I've sold more books than that. Right. So you can't <laughs> judge. So, but, but clearly some panel of judges that were judging literary success, which is That's where this awesome. person- I'm wa- really happy to hear that. Yeah. And there's a lot of metrics for success. He wanted literary success. J.K. Rowling wanted commercial success. E.L. James wanted commercial success. So they sold hundreds of millions of copies of their books and made movies. So there's different types of success. And the great thing about being humans is that we're not in one tribe. So if we were all in one tribe, there would be 30 of us and it would go from alpha to omega. And it's very clear who's the alpha and who's at the bottom, who's the omega. And that's for males and females. But I could be in... Today, I'm in the podcasting tribe, so I want to do the best podcast possible so our two podcasts go up in our podcasting tribe. But then later, I'll be in the writing tribe, and I'll want readers from my writing. So we can, we're can we great as humans because what made our species so special is that we can go from tribe to tribe and adapt very quickly and then change our – we always need metrics for to judge ourselves because the whole alpha omega thing is built into our DNA, but we can quickly – go to many tribes all the time and diversify the tribes that we're trying to get better in and the tribe that we're the best in. And there's all these neurochemicals to encourage us in each situation we're in. You know, as you get better, you have a serotonin boost. As you're the best, you get a dopamine boost. As you're accepted by the tribe, you get an oxytocin boost. (laughs) So 
And if I get cortisol in, let's say the podcast is horrible. Okay, it's quite the forget, cocktail forget, of, of hormones. Yes. But if you're in a try where it's not going so well, oh, I lost money trading today. Okay, I'm going to write about it and people are going to relate and I'm going to do that. Or I'm going to try something new, stand-up comedy, so I can begin at the beginning of a learning curve and I'm going to try to get good at that. And there's all sorts of things we can try and do and experiment in. Money is only a metric in very few cases, yeah. really. It's Nothing- short-lived. That stimulus that you get from that boost of whatever, like, oh, I made a million dollars or I made my first paycheck, I made money, I'm profitable. It's short-lived because ultimately you have to sustain. Yeah, and not only that, most of the things that we enjoy have nothing to do with money. Let's say I want to get better at ping pong. Let's say you're better than me at ping pong, and I would love to be better than you at ping pong. I'm tonight. You might be better than me at ping pong. <laughs> well, let's say let's say you're better than me. <laughs> I'm gonna okay. guess yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna tonight without without with minimal amount of money. I'm gonna take a ping pong lesson from a better ping pong player, and I'll learn to beat Barnoosh in ping pong. And that has nothing to do with money, but it'll make me feel good because I'm feeling competitive with you on ping pong and or what whatever my interest is. So most things we do in life have nothing to do with money anyway. It's just that we all measure, you know, the newspaper measures it, advertising measures it, you know, our parents measure it, our schools measure it because we don't want to be poor and impoverished and homeless. So we have this fear and scarcity thing, but you have to kind of train yourself to have more of an abundance feeling. So you invest in yourself, you invest in businesses, you invest in the stock market. Is that it? Do you not, what, what do you think people should not be investing in? Uh, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think like art, real estate, people, you know, write in, they're like, I want to go international and buy a house and make it into a rental. Should I do it? I'm like, you're asking me, you're not doing the right due diligence. Well, well, (laughs) I think in like you should always invest in things you enjoy. So I don't enjoy real estate and clearly real estate is good for some people, not good for others. So I know a guy who invests successfully in foreign real estate. I asked him, what's your technique? He told me his technique and it was amazing. And I went to another guy and I said, look, this is, here's this guy's technique. You should do this. And they're like, oh, I don't want to travel to these other countries. So, so for, so for right. some people it didn't work. Um, but like art is a very scary thing to invest in. You have to really know what you're doing. And very, I would say very one rare. tenth of one tenth of one tenth of one percent know what they're doing. Most people will lose money on art. Wine, some people invest in. That's like the craziest investment I ever heard. Some people have invested in gold and done well. I think that's a crazy investment. It, to me, it's just a rock. And we don't know how currency is going to evolve with both paper currency and Bitcoin. We just don't really know how it's going to evolve. So I think things, if you invest in things that you love and enjoy and are an expert in, or if you invest with people who are smarter than you, which I think is even better, then you could kind of piggyback then and then just do the things you enjoy. Most people don't enjoy investing in things. I don't enjoy investing. So I'll just say, okay, you're smarter than me at private companies. So you tell me where to put the money and I'll do it. And I just trust other people to, to, who are yeah. smarter than me to help me. So Warren Buffett's smarter than me. I'll look at Warren Buffett's portfolio. Oh, okay. I like those stocks. I'll, Warren Buffett's in them. It's good enough for me. Or Peter Thiel's in these private companies. I get to invest. Good enough for me. Um, it's also your stomach for risk. You know, some things are far riskier than others. I feel like for, and, and not only just like objectively risky, but what are, what's scary to you? And that's yeah. different for everybody. Well, well like um, angel investing, investing in a private company is scary because you're never going to get out of it. Like I've invested in companies in 2007 that I'm still invested in. It's 2017. It's 10 years later. So does that mean they're a failure? No, actually that means they're, they're a success. They've been in business for 10 years growing. I actually don't want my money back because they're growing so much faster than the stock market. Where else am I going to put my money that right. grows like that? So, so with you have to have also a timeline uh, uh, preferences, you know, and diversify according to timeline. Stock market, you can pull your money out. Real estate, you can't. Real estate strikes me as crazy, but that's just me. You put all of your money and then you borrow five times that amount and then you put it in something that's totally illiquid. You can't just get your money out of it. And then when you do need your money out, which has happened to me twice when I need, desperately needed it, that was when the real estate market was crashing. So I couldn't get my money out. And I, here I was leveraged and the IRS was after me and the property taxes and I needed the cash that I had put into this business and into the house and maintenance costs were not what I expected and I couldn't rent it because everything was crazy. 
So to me, real estate is crazy. I don't do it, but some people do. I want to share an anecdote we were talking about on your podcast. I was surprised to hear this, that you met Bernie Madoff. Yeah. And now he's uh, in the headlines again, mostly because uh, there's there, there have been some movies. Um, yeah, Robert on, De Niro Robert just played him on Wizard of uh, Wall Street. The big question people still can't answer, a lot of people, and I don't think I can really answer it, is how did he get away with it? Okay, so I've encountered a lot of Ponzi schemes. Madoff's obviously the well, he biggest. He didn't get away with it ultimately, but right. He was but he also, got away with he it. He ran for, the Nasdaq. He had such prominent seats on Wall right, Street. He created the Nasdaq. Yeah, like he created the idea of electronic exchanges. The New York Stock Exchange was like people in a pit yelling and screaming at each other. Bernie Madoff had the innovation to say, "No, this could all be done by these new things called computers." He could have been doing so much more help and good. Instead, he decided to, to, to scam people. I mean, someone right. who can think up the NASDAQ yeah. is brilliant, which is probably why he could do what he did. Well, why he got away with it yeah. for, so, for so long. And and look, people knew he was a fraud. Like Harry Markopoulos, who, who, who was famous for exposing him as a fraud, because here's a guy, Madoff, Madoff, it was a very obvious thing when you look at it in retrospect, Madoff had a, supposedly $60 billion in his fund and he claimed he was trading options, but no, $60 billion of worth of options weren't even being traded. Nobody had even heard of him on the options floor. So clearly there was a fraud, but nobody investigated. So that was a huge because one. Because he was so prominent and- Prominent, people thought they were gonna- um uh, maybe work for him after they worked for the SEC. So there was that. He always had that bait out. There's a lot of reasons why frauds get away with it. He had a certain charisma. Um, I used to invest in a lot of hedge funds. I ran a fund of hedge funds, which is a hedge fund that invests in other hedge funds. So I had the opportunity to do due diligence on hundreds or even a thousand very smart people running hedge funds. And I saw tons of people I suspected were mini Madoffs, mini Ponzi schemes, and not even many, like $600 million worth, a billion dollars worth. Madoff was a 60 billion. 60 billion dollars. Yeah. So he was, he was huge. So he was caught. I've seen people now, some of the people I thought were mini Madoffs were caught. They paid a small fine and they got away with it because it's hard to to catch and investigate and prosecute. So they paid fines, they settled, and then they disappeared with, let's say, $100 million in their pocket. So I saw so many people get away with the worst, most disgusting stuff. But Madoff got caught because he ran, he, he ran. It during- was the recession. He was running out of money. I yeah. saw the movie. <laughs> yeah. I saw the Robert De Niro portrayal. The more, more interesting thing is how did it start? And I think and no one really knows how it started, but here's my theory, is I think he equated net worth with self-worth. Everybody thought he was such a genius. Like, oh, this guy started the the, the NASDAQ and, you know, his parents probably thought he was smart and he probably was in a whole community. Well, you should never tell your child that. Yeah, you're, you're my little genius. Yeah, no. Like, he, he probably had everyone thinking, this is the biggest genius in the world. So he probably started managing money and then one month, whether it was in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, we don't know, one month he probably had a bad month and he was probably so afraid, oh no, everyone's going to think I'm stupid. And he probably lied about it that month. And then the next month he couldn't catch back up and he probably lied about it again. And then after two months, unless you just close down business, you're you're in it for good now. Do you think and, it could happen again? Uh, absolutely. I think it's, uh, I think it's a little more regulated, but look, I'm sure there's, I'm sure every day Wall Street is probably 90% scam and 10% legit. A lot of it's gray area, which is why it's so hard to prosecute and you Mm -hmm. can't, and being a whistleblower is a full-time job because then you have people after you and, and you have to do all these things and you can't just say, oh, look at this guy. You have to show evidence. So being a whistleblower, which some people do is a a full-time job, but I've definitely seen like, craziness. And that's why I don't really like that industry in, in general. It's 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 hard to compete because you don't know if you're competing against people who are breaking the law to get their returns. Last time you were on the show, since the last time you were on the show, you, your lifestyle's changed a lot. You sold all your possessions, which we talked about on your podcast. Sold or gave away. Gave away. I didn't really sell them, actually. I didn't make any money off of them. I, I approached a friend of mine and I said, I just don't want to deal with any of these things. I have so two. She sold it. She, she had the choice for all of my possessions, 100%, either sell, um, keep, uh, you know, sell and keep the money for yourself, keep 
for yourself or, or, or give away to charity or to a family or, or, or give away to your family or give away to charity. So she had those four choices and it took her about 10 days every day. A hundred trash bags. Yeah. hundred trash bags, uh, back and forth with 18 wheeler trucks and her whole family. Like, like she brought cousins, nephews, children, her husband, like they were going through all my stuff. I, they really know my life inside and outwards. They were going through stuff. I was surprised. I still had lying around and it was disgusting, but, um, uh, but you know, fortunately she's still a good friend and, and won't, (laughs) didn't take pictures of everything. So, so extreme is this move, this pivot that you've made that the New York times wrote about it. How did that feature come about? A lot of people want to get featured in the New York times and you had a front page, I think it was the style section. Yeah, like so it was the primo sti- real estate front page of the fashion mm. slash style section. So I said to my girlfriend, <laughs> and I said, "You're joining us now, Pamela." She's she's taking the <laughs> she's video, filming. and I said to my kids, "Listen." You can't argue with me about fashion now because I'm known as a fashion icon. <laughs> I'm I'm on the front page. I've shared page. the real estate with Anna Winter and I'm on the front page of the New York Times fashion section. I must be either gorgeous or a fashion icon. So you you choose, but you have to listen to me now on fashion. They don't they don't listen to me. So um but but how did that article come about? Well, they I had written about it. And again, not as like, this is what you should do. I just, I never give advice. I say advice is autobiography. So this is what I did. And I, and these are the reasons why I did it. So that's what I wrote about. And then somebody picked up on that and said, they assume, you know, the title of that article said, you know, self-help guru only has 15 possessions. And I tried to say, don't use the word guru. I don't give advice. I'm not, a, I'm. Um, but you I, do. You've been giving advice for the last 30 minutes. But this is mostly what I do for myself. advice. Yeah. So you could choose to do, like I said about real estate, some people like this idea, some people don't. But, um, uh, you know, they, he contacted me and thought it was interesting and, and would want to know why. Because in general, people who have had some financial success, they usually get obsessed with buying the bigger houses, the bigger cars, get it, you know, going on fancy vacations, getting fancy. I think that's your show idea, downsizing. Maybe, but- You've done it, you you know, and I think that there is less is more. The whole Marie, you can can leverage the whole Marie Kondo trend. Although I don't, and it's like, we've had this conversation. I I don't like her view. uh, I mean, her view is fine. But I don't subscribe to she. Her but view there's is a lot of interest in that. Is my point? Yes, I mean, I mean it's a multi international best selling book. People are yes. fascinated with how two less million can be people more. in Japan bought that book. I don't know how many millions in America. Well, Oprah liked it. So. Yeah, <laughs> but her whole thing is like, oh, put all your objects on the floor, and if you love an object, keep it, and else throw it out. Some of her points are really good, like throw out all your paperwork because it's all digital now. And, you know, I, I've read the book. I, I I like some of her approach and some of her approach I don't. My view is I don't want anything. I don't want to – I only want to – you know, actions are better – you know, actions are better than – experiences are greater than things. So – a th- the 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 marginal benefit of happiness of owning a thing goes down very quickly but i could take a ping pong lesson and i'm going to be ex- or i'm just making that up i could take a lesson in anything i enjoy an archery lesson or whatever a painting lesson i could anticipate it i'm going to have so much fun i could do it i'm going to be a better painter i can now paint at home and then and then afterwards I can look back. I had this great experience where I went to see Louis C.K. perform stand up live. I had this great experience. So experiences for me are greater than things. And uh, I like to uh, enjoy my life and not worry about where, how am I going to move all these things? What am I going to buy? What am I going to get rid of? I don't like to deal with that. And um, so, so this guy heard about this and decided to write about it. And and it was a nice article and, and did it did it what was the best outcome from that article? I mean, because sometimes people say like being featured on such a huge platform, get making the New York Times bestseller list, be at better yet getting a feature in the New York Times. How did that like for some people it turns into a TV show? Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking about so did that ideas. Happen? I mean, we'll see. I'm thinking about ideas like that. I've I've been pitching different ideas and uh I think it helped, you know, so so I have several books recent books that I've written that I really believe in. I won't promote them, but, uh, but they all hit number one on Amazon in both fiction and nonfiction, which was like incredible to me that I'd never had before. Yeah. Well, meaning 
in the entire Amazon store, they beat out all the fiction okay. and they beat out okay. all the nonfiction. They were like number one in the store, wow. and which had never happened to me before. And so that was a nice thing. And that still is kind of happening. More than Harry Potter and the Bible. Yeah, That's everything. Incredible. I was number one for like a day. and um, Which is, the Bible is the number one selling book of all time. Of all time, but not today. Like, but, not, like, but not when you were number one on Amazon. Yeah, not when I was Forget number it. one. People uh, aren't buying their Bibles on Amazon, though. I think they're buying them in Christian stores. That's probably true, because the Bible is a hard thing to read on your Kindle. The Christian book market is Zondervan, huge. owned by uh, News Corporation. Really? Yeah, oh. most of the Bibles are sold by Rupert Murdoch. Of course. <laughs> so Fox News makes their money on the Bible. <laughs> I should have known that. Um, but uh, but yeah, there was there there was also I think a lot of people started listening to my podcast because they saw I'm interested in exploring different ways to live life where you can be not always happy but always experience well being. So well being is not about again not about money but it's about your your relationships and how good they are. It's about feeling a sense of significance. It's about improving at something you you love. Uh, and it's about having a sense of freedom. And so all of these things helped me have those uh, those feelings. Well-being has nothing to do with money, but maybe people could say, well, well money could buy some freedom. Only a little bit. Most mm-hmm. people who are billionaires die with a lot of money in the bank. So money only bought them money. It didn't actually, they didn't mm-hmm. actually use that money to buy freedom. They just used that money to to buy money. So they put it in the bank. What are you going to do with it. your money? Are you going to give it to your kids? Are you going to Yeah, all of it will just- it? All of it will just go I think, to my do you kids. Think that, do you think that they'll be ready for it? Do you think they'll be mature enough to handle it? I don't you even don't care. Do um, you have any I'm, rules or regulations around the money? Like they see how I live. I just you can you can never tell anyone what to do. Nobody. Imagine this. Let's say your best friend uh, tells you uh, my husband's cheating on me and beating me. What should I do? You would say the obvious, which is leave him now, and he's no good for you. Leave him. How many people actually listen to that advice? Six months later, you run into your friend like, oh, we, my husband and I, we made up. We're back together again. Like people don't listen to advice. So what I do with my kids is I let them see by example, both the good and the bad and the ugly with me. And and I have one rule, which is I'll if they want a connection, sometimes I have the connection, sometimes I don't, um, but I'll introduce them to somebody once. And then after that, if they ask me, can you introduce me again? No, you, you, I already made the intro. You can now write to them and say, I met you through James. Here's my ideas. Be creative. Come up with 10 ideas for them like I do and work for it. Earn your respect from these people I introduce you to and don't embarrass me. But uh, in, in general, I try to live by example. For money, I don't care at all because uh, if I, maybe I won't even die with any money, but if I do, they could just have it. I don't care. I'll be dead. They could start taking drugs and ruin their no, lives. And no, then, no, no. I mean, hopefully no, they won't. No. I don't Pamela think they will. and I are shaking our heads. I, no. I, I, don't, I don't think they will, but it, I'll be dead. I, it won't matter to me. I'm sure, and I've met your daughters, although it was a while ago, but I, I, you do a nice job of keeping us posted on some of their accomplishments and I, they're, they're I just, doing it, really well. I just introduced my 18-year-old was looking for an internship and job for the summer. And I introduced her the one time to a guy who's running a virtual reality event space. You can go downtown and try all the headsets and experience all these virtual realities. And now she's got this internship and she's so excited. Awesome. It was a great thing for her. She never even knew what a virtual reality was. And she's reading Ready Player One, the science fiction book about college? it. Did they go to college? They're in high school right now. The older one wants to go to college. I'm hoping this virtual reality experience will dissuade her, but we'll see. But uh, you'll be okay if she still wants to go. She's 18. That's going to hurt your brand. It, 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 it will. It <laughs> that will. That is not good I, for the James I, 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 should ar- I should argue with her. Like you're, <laughs> people are going to think I'm, um, I'm a hypocrite, but she's 18. She's an adult. Uh, what can I do? Am I going to, well, gonna, look, am I going to lock her in a cage? with no debt, I don't think it's time wasted. Yeah. I mean, I'm against it and I've, she knows all the reasons why I'm against it. And she's re- seen my book. I don't know if she's read it. I have a book, Glory Alternatives to College, uh, which was the number one book under college in Amazon for a long time. She's got all the information and I try to expose her to as many experiences as possible. I've uh, Here's what I've done. I've offered her the Alt- what I call the Altature Fellowship, which is, I said, I'm only offering it to you. You win. I'm not offering it to anyone else, which is here's a brick of cash and the only thing you have to do is watch a movie with me every single day. And then we talk about it. And then you can do whatever else you want for the rest of the day. 
and here's the and you're you're paying her to do this. Yeah. Can I do this? I no, she's the no, only one. No, she's the only one. Well, your she's, other daughter doesn't get it. She's well, she's fifteen. So, oh, okay. So she'll get that Maybe offer when too she's later. Ready. Yeah. Someone asked, and I'll I want to end on this. Would you ever mentor anyone for free? A random person. Well, I write. Uh, every day. That's your mentorship. And I th- I think I've gained the most from virtual mentors. Like people I've I've read, they're great books. And maybe I've had the opportunity to answer, ask them a couple of questions. Like I go on Twitter and for me, I go on Twitter and do Q and A's with people. Um, but it's, I, I spend my creative time writing or podcasting. and I feel that helps the most people, or at least it helps me. And I have people who work with me who I guess they could view me as a mentor. Or sometimes I learn from them. I hire people who are better than me to do jobs. So I learn from them. So mentorship's a two-way street often. And I find often with actual mentorships, eventually the student, you know, passes the mentor. And and often in my case, where I've been the student, I don't end up being friends with the mentor. It is weird, isn't it? So, So I had a business once where four or five of my best employees left my business to start their own business. And my partners were very upset, but I was very encouraging. Like, this is what they're supposed to do is go off and start their own business and create wealth. You can't be the only one to create wealth. You've got to help the people who helped you. And in my business now, all of my employees are constantly exploring side opportunities. I'm sure they all, I'm sure they even secretly all have multiple sources of income. Cause that's what I, t- you know, t- that's what I do. So they see me do it. They can't, and you can't, it can't be like I do it and my employees don't. So I, I have to live by example. And, uh, we thank you for it. Thanks so much. And you are so inspiring. Uh, Newsflash, everyone listening, James and I are going to do an experiment, like a kind of a weekly show together where we talk about the headlines, the news. We can, you know, you can send us your questions, but we're going to try to keep it more current topic, topical. Headlines with Farnoosh. Headlines with Farnoosh and James. Yes. Live with Farnoosh and James. We got to think of a title. And then the hope is that we will get picked up and syndicated on, you know, daytime television. Yeah. We'll replace the Today Show. (laughs) You know what? Watch out, Kelly and... Who's her host now? Um, Ryan. Ryan Seacrest. Yeah, why did that happen? I don't like that. He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Why would he do a daytime show with Kelly you know, Ripa? I think that it was, who knows what happened behind the scenes, but I feel as though- Like, it's not that fun. I watch a clip. It's not fun. He's I don't, just, they're, they're like a pigeon is flying around and they're trying to catch it. Like, this I really like fun. Kelly, I liked the rotating hot seat. I liked Kelly with different co-hosts. I liked that. I thought that was a great, great, you know, kept it fresh all the time and- um, you don't get too attached and, um, she still gets to like be the, the queen bee. And I don't know. I, I don't it's know. It's not like people forgot who he was. I mean, he was the voice of American Idol, right? So. Doesn't he have enough jobs? Yeah. You know he, he, mean? Produ- he produced and created all the Kardashian, the Kardashian shows. So, so seriously, Bernice, why do you think he did it? Why do people, why do people do that extra it's thing easy. to have relevance when he because already was relevant? All, it's an hour a day of work. Okay. You probably make a nice. 20 mil. Plus, you think he makes plus, that much from oh, that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, with, it's one of the top shows in its time slot, if Is not it? all of daytime. Okay. It's it's very, very lucrative. It's been going on for, I mean, Michael Gelman knows what he's doing. It's it's very successful. They get- Have you been on the show? I've been on the show. Oh, I've been on the show well, with Regis. I've been so on the really show know. with Michael. Strahan? Um, Strahan? Yeah, Strahan. I haven't been on yet um, with this new cast of hosts, but I think- that it does very well. I think he's going to make a lot of money. I think it's going to elevate his profile even more, believe it or not. I mean, who doesn't know Ryan Seacrest at this point? But I think it's also potentially fun. Not bad, right? To come right. on and like chat with your with, with Callie Ripa, who I think I love. And I think she's really sweet and smart and interesting. Um, but yeah, I think it, it also gives him a chance to live in New York. Maybe he's wanted to do that for a while. So there's got to have been some personal reasons. But um I think that he loves the spotlight and this is a great Yeah, I guess it's an hour every morning in front of an audience he's probably not used to like at all. You know, it's mostly women audience watching those that show. Mostly, yeah. And uh, which is probably different than the American Idol audience. I don't know. Well, but- and it's easy for him because he's already talking to a lot of these guests on his radio show or hmm. just in his day-to-day business. So I think the show is hoping to leverage his relationships with a lot of these big stars yeah. to bring them on their show and compete with other shows in that time slot. I mean, there had to have been some good reasons. Yeah. All right. Anyway, I'll go, I'll, I'll go. I was with still you on hoping that. for Anderson Cooper, but 
He's got a good thing at CNN. Yeah. He's like dominate CNN. <laughs> Have you ever been on his show? I've been on his talk show, which ran for two years. Talk shows are very tough to crack. The talk show model yeah. is very tough. Um, you know, everyone from Katie Couric to Anderson Cooper to uh, Meredith Vieira have tried and been unsuccessful. Have you been on Katie Couric's? Does she still do her Yahoo show? What's she doing now? She's at Yahoo. I was leaving as she was coming into So Katie Couric was like the new... Um, Farnoosh. No, 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 no way. I mean, Katie's doing so many... Is No, no, not even close. But when the new CEO came... Marissa Meyer. Marissa Meyer, Yeah. Is she still there? Uh, you know, it's She's now way, part of Verizon, but I don't know if that deal's closed, so I don't know. It was just everything changed overnight. And, um, w- you know, I had a great run there and I had lots of great friends there. We, I felt like we built a really great um, thing for Yahoo in terms of content and f- just people were loving our shows and videos. And they just decided that that was not where, the direction they wanted to take Yahoo. And so they brought in these big names like Katie Couric and um, Bobby Brown to run their, you know, beauty vertical. And I felt like that wasn't, that that, that was a, a different generation of, of celebrity and brand that was not the Yahoo viewer or reader. You know, it was yeah. like, I think the model was, let's just bring in these really big famous people, pay them big salaries. Is take Katie them, still there? She's still there. Yeah. You should have her on your show here. Um. I don't know if she would come on. I don't she know. Would. I'm pretty small. I'm a small potato. You're not small. <laughs> How tall are you? I'm 5'4". <laughs> a little, little smaller than me. I but think I, she's my I'm height. Not much smaller. <laughs> so, you know, literally she's the same height as me, but I um, I don't know. That might be a little strange. I don't know. We get more to discuss on our weekly show yes. that we're launching. I've had a lot of, a lot of, I have a lot of stories that I haven't shared yet with, with the American people. Yeah, well, we'll we'll share them. We'll do this again. And the international people. We're like in a lot of countries, right? Yeah. All right, James, thank you so much. 87 countries. So money. Yeah, well, people need to know about their finances. Thanks. Thank you, Farnoosh, for having me on. And once again, third time's a charm. That's my friend James Altucher. Isn't he awesome? Thanks so much, James, for stopping by. And I am on his podcast this week as well. So run over to James's podcast, Altature Confidential, to hear us riff on all different kinds of things. And I actually interview him on his podcast. It's very meta. You'll have to listen to it and tell me what you think. If you want to check out James's work, please go to jamesaltature.com where he's got everything there. You can access his books, his podcasts, his appearances. And uh, yeah, that's a wrap, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in and hope your day is so money. <laughs>